I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Georgia Botta, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello, and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starks. On today's program, we talk with Georgia Boscher about life as an Italian junior champion, her transition to elite competition in New York, and her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm well, Catherine. How are you? Have you recovered from our tournament this weekend? Oh, I think so. I think so. But it was, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. So so you had a meeting, is that right? I did. I had a meeting and it was about an hour away and I didn't know how I was going to make it work to get back to the tournament. So I ended up doing it on site at the meeting and it was... uh not ideal circumstances, but I don't think that I can, um, I don't think that I can attribute our performance to that rather unfortunate <laughs> setup that I had. Paint the picture <laughs> for me. Where where were you? I mean, as in like, where were you sitting playing? What, what was the situation? I was like in a hallway and it was in a church and they were like vacuuming around me, but I did have my computer and I did have a mouse and a mouse pad. I was prepared. Then I had to drive home an hour. You know, they gave us a little bit more than an hour's break between the two sessions. So I really had to, I had to skedaddle. And I was just terrified that I was going to get pulled over for speeding and have to explain, I'm sorry, officer, but I must get to my bridge tournament. I have committed to my partner and I can't leave her hanging. I will pay whatever ticket you need me to pay. 
<laughs> but just let me go. But you made it. I didn't get pulled over. I made it. Yeah. We played our second session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Such as it was, you know, um, it's interesting because we had um, a Grand Slam in that tournament, which comes up so rarely. Unfortunately, but it is so fun. Well, I mean, you beat this one, which was just beautiful because I didn't think I would have got there. And then I think the ops helped us a little bit, which was nice. But we, I think we got 100 on that board. I think we did. Yeah. I mean, it, w- it was crazy distribution and it could have gone off. Like I had a seven card suit opposite your singleton. You had a seven card suit opposite a void. Then we had one suit in common. I mean, it really could have been a disaster. When I see hands like that, it's almost like an out of body experience. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think on some deep level, I have an intuition about how to play it, which thankfully worked out. But, um, I just grit my teeth and go in there. I really wasn't confident at all, but it made. So that was really nice. Yeah, it was fun. It was it was fun betting it. And it was very fun getting to be the dummy and watch you play it. <laughs> I really admire your dedication to the core. I remember when I was um, trying to get my my final uh, silver points to become life master and um, you, it was your wedding anniversary. I think you went home from dinner to play with me. <laughs> Oh, this is when we were chasing the games all over the globe because we had, or at least from the East Coast all over to to the last possible game in Hawaii. Yeah, that was it. That was it. That did it. So, you know, Jocelyn, we asked people to send us their bridge stories and there's been a couple in the mailbag. Oh, yeah. Should I read oh, you yes, one? please. Yes. <laughs> okay. So this story is from Gail in New York in the US. And she's talking about when she first started playing bridge. So here we go. I met my friend Ellen when I started taking lessons. We had both retired from banking jobs and were looking for something to occupy our days. Ellen's mother had been a competitive bridge player, so she was familiar with bridge, but I had no experience. After three or four months of lessons, Ellen said that we would never improve unless we started playing duplicate. I had no idea what that was. I agreed to go with her to the club, but after she explained how it worked, I was really apprehensive because I realized everyone would know how we bid and how we played every hand. We sat down at the first table with two really nice men. I was nervous. I opened my first hand and saw that I had 17 points, but there was no way I was playing the first hand on my first time at the club, and especially not in no trump. So I passed. And then everyone else passed. (laughs) My right-hand opponent politely asked if he could look at my hand. After reviewing it, he asked me why I didn't bid. I said I was too nervous to be the declarer. (laughs) She says it's now years later, but I still run into those same men at the bridge table and we laugh at how far far I've come since that first day. Oh, (laughs) I know. Oh, (laughs) oh, it was traumatizing, but she... But she made it and she's and she's now really good. That's I fantastic. I know. Do you remember your first time at a club? Yes, I do. Yeah. I arrived. I knew nothing. I didn't have a partner. And the lovely manager of the club said, well, you, you need a partner. I said, well, that's what I'm here. And she was kind enough to set me up with somebody who was able to play with me that night. But that was really lucky. And we laugh about that to to this day as well. And how about you? Do you remember your first time at a at a club? Well, mine was lessons. I just walked in literally off the street. There was a sandwich board and I'm like, okay. 
And I just turned up because they were offering these four free lessons. And I was like, oh, sure, whatever. And I walked in and um, I had no idea what I was in for. And of course, it was a club. So it was like a gateway. You were meant to take lessons and then start playing at the club. So in a sense, the lessons were my first time at the club. But I remember going home after that first lesson and just like deriding the instructor. I thought it was so funny. I thought she was taking herself so seriously, you know, the notation on the whiteboard and everything. (laughs) <laughs> like you she know. thinks this is a real yeah. subject to be taught <laughs> exactly exactly, yeah. exactly. anyway yeah, little, I, did I, we, little did we appreciate that we would be wrapped in these lessons and have books upon books that we study avidly trying Indeed. to learn this Indeed. game <laughs> so there you go that's so funny well We'd love to hear all of your stories about your first times at the club. And in fact, any funny story that you have about bridge or about a bridge club or a tournament or about your partner, please send your stories to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read them on the podcast. Coming up next, our interview with Georgia Bosha. Georgia Botta is an Italian native with a New York soul. Her bridge career has taken her from the Italian junior program, which she joined at 14, to bronze, silver, and gold medals at various national, European, and world championships. We talked about her transition from being a junior champion, living with her family in Rome, to moving to the U.S. and life as a bridge professional in Manhattan. But first, she discussed her best and worst boards of the week playing with her regular partner, Zach Grosak. Uh, it was a pretty good day. Can't complain. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we got to um, an unmakeable slam, as it's usually the case for this partnership. <laughs> there are always a lot of slams being better. We have a decent success rate. But I mean, today was uh, the best and worst altogether was an unsuccessful slam that we attempted. Uh, I think it was... A usual, a little bit of a 50-50 blame, uh, you know, but I made the first mistake. So, you know, you always stop at the first mistake. You don't keep the blame going after that. But yes, a bad slam, you know, I overbid a little. And then if I overbid a little, there is no stopping Zach. So we ended up in six going down two or three. I'm not sure, but it was down a few. (laughs) (laughs) Were you doubled? Uh, No, at least that. It didn't save me a lot of imps. We still lost 12 or 13 imps on that board, so it didn't help me much, but it's not double. (laughs) Over the course of time, it'll pay off, right, that you go for all these slams. Yes. And that's the expectation. You're going to take some big hits. Absolutely. But by bidding so many, you're going to, you know, hopefully the odds will favor. correct. (laughs) Correct. I mean, you know, assuming that they're not always that crazy, assuming that there is some science behind them in the long term, it should pay off. (laughs) Do you two talk about it afterwards or is it just, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, usually we yell about it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Once in a while we talk. Most of the time we yell. (laughs) But yes, we do, especially when there is some, you know, sort of clear misunderstanding. Now, most of the time we know who did what and who shouldn't have done what. Sometimes we don't agree that requires a little bit extra work, let's say. <laughs> How long have you two been playing together? Um, not that long. I'd say just uh, just over a year by now. So pretty new. When we only play, or at least, you know, as of now, we mostly play the mixed events, you know, men and women. So that's our, our bread and butter, I would say. And why is that, George? Um, Why is it that I 
play with him only? The yeah, yeah. I guess why the mix? First of all, you know, as a woman in bridge, uh, making our way through the open world is very hard. Uh, for uh, you know more and less valuable reasons, but anyhow, it's not easy. So I have to say that the mix for us. Uh, maybe a little bit discriminatory as it may be. It actually offers a lot of opportunity for women to play at the big stage and still find uh, still find some room in there. Can you tell me more about that? Like, what is it that do you feel less than welcome in the open games? How would you describe what goes on? Well, I think it's just, you know, historically, uh, women have not been as successful for many obvious reasons. Uh, women play a lot less, uh, a lot more things on our plate. So, you know... Just in general, uh, the success rate of women bridge player has been uh, definitely not as, as high and as good as men. Um, uh, and even the skills in a way. But again, it's not because of the woman, it's because there are so many other things happening. And, and since it has been harder and harder for a woman to be a full-time professional, of course, the, the improvement in the game had also, you know, has been a lot slower. So in a way, it's true that women are not as good, but it's not because they're not as good. It's because, you know, they haven't had the opportunity to grow as much and become as good. And, and say your other female bridge playing friends, do they feel the same way? Uh, I would say so. Yeah, I think most of us are uh, not. I mean, most of us are happy and in a way proud of the women world and, you know, and being able to compete in it. There is no reason why you know, having to demand that only open. I mean, if you don't want to play in the women's, don't. Nobody's forcing you to. But I think most of us are happy that the women world does exist. It also, you know, for professionals, chances would be really small if that world didn't exist, you know, for us. But at the same time, of course, we all strive and wish to do well outside of it as well. And do the male players show any awareness of the kind of systemic issues that have prohibited women from maybe uh, competing at the top level? Yes. I would say that, you know, the real main concern is, you know, you're not quite as good, so I don't really want you on my team at the moment. Maybe it's not your fault you're not quite as good. And honestly, in a way, it's like, I get it. You know, it's your job. It's our job. It's everybody's job. If you can have a stronger team rather than, you know, a weaker team, I could see it. Uh, but I have to say I've had a lot of sympathy, at least in the people I, you know, surround myself with and uh, a lot of support. So I, I can't complain personally, but I definitely could feel the difference. You know, there are plenty of men that are just as good as me, if maybe not a little bit less and with a lot more opportunities. But don't you find, you know, like if traditionally more men have been playing than women, then just mathematically there's going to be more better male players. And so, sure, if you're on a team and wanting to put that together, you'll have more choice of better male players. But, you know, with any kind of discrimination, let's put it that way, don't you think that the group in power has to make a conscious choice to start to almost self-consciously adjust even if, it's not a natural thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I would guess that in our world, that would probably have to come in from the top. That would probably have to come from the sponsors. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to demand it of, uh, of the other people that are working in the team 
you know, uh, if the sponsor says, get me the best team you can get me, you know, that's what she'll do. And I'm not blaming anybody, you know, no, in any way. No, of course, way. of course. Uh, but I'm no, just saying that if there was, uh, you know, if there was that desire, it would probably be something that it would have to come from higher than just my my colleagues. Has to come again. from the money. That's right. That's right. We're all out <laughs> for the same thing. We're all out for work and success. So, you know, I, I get it. You know, it's a tough like in every field, it's a tough topic. We definitely don't have it as bad as most people do in this sort of topic. So we really can't complain too much. <laughs> do you ever encounter sexist attitudes at the table just from people who don't know who you are or um, not necessarily from the sponsors or your teammates, but just? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess it's a little bit of a combination of being, uh, you know, being a woman, being young, being foreign. Uh, you know, definitely moving to New York, there were a lot of factors adding one on top of the other that definitely built up in uh, in the sort of relationship I had with many people. It's not like I'm happy that because now they know who I am, that they're nicer to me. You know, I'm definitely not a believer in that lifestyle, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, you showed them. That's got to be gratifying. Yeah, for sure. If that's what it took for them to be nice to me, you know, whatever, I'll take it. It's not how it should be that, but I'll take it. <laughs> what about with teaching? You know, especially because you're probably significantly younger than a lot of your pupils. How yeah. do you manage that 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 imbalance? Yeah, you know, uh, I've, I've been playing bridge for so long. I have spent my life surrounded by people that are a lot older than me. And I, you know, I think in a way sort of grew to be able to adapt and you know so it's definitely interesting you know most people are always like oh my god you could be my daughter oh my god you could be my <laughs> granddaughter you know every time they talk about oh I have a new grandchild and I'm like you have grandchildren <laughs> and they're like yes and you could almost be one of them <laughs> so yeah but you know I, I got used to it and I think they get used to it uh I actually have really good relationship with uh, all of my students, uh, so uh, so it's good. It's good. How do you organize your teaching? Is it is it a class, or do you play one on one, or uh, either? All of it. All of it. So, uh, yeah, I would say a pretty good fifty fifty classes and uh, and uh, you know uh, playing lesson as we would call it. So yeah, just one on one in tournaments. I've definitely done even more teaching, you know, during the pandemic than I did before. People had a lot of free time, uh, you know, a lot of time to spare at home. Thank God for BBO <laughs> and, and Real Bridge, Good. huh? Seriously, seriously. <laughs> so now that the uh, lives are turning to some sort of new normal, I expect you'll be teaching on cruises again fairly soon. I know you've done that a lot in the past, and I'm curious about what that's like, both as a teacher, but also to be there 24-7 with the pupils. Yeah, you know, um, I'd never been on a cruise before I did my first uh, teaching cruise. And I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I don't think I like it very much, you know, like, I'm like a hundred miles an hour and just the idea of having to be there. But when you try the type of cruises I teach on, you change your mind <laughs> because they are fancy and they are good. So I am now a full supporter of cruises. <laughs> Again, you know, I could never afford the type of cruise I am teaching on. 
So the type of cruises I could afford, I might not like quite as much, but they're, they're great. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's actually a great learning environment as well, because again, you know, you have a lot of time in your hands and uh, uh, it's great to alternate bridge classes, excursions. Uh, so it's great fun, I'm sure, for everybody that joins the cruises. And, um, you know, we don't really spend all day together. We really mostly only spend the, uh, you know, hours of bridge together. And in that part, you know, I teach for about 45 minutes per session. We usually have a couple of sessions a day. And for the rest, you know, the, everybody else is just playing regular duplicate. Of course, you know, I'm around and we'll chat, but you know, there's, a, there's a little bit of time for yourself. Um, and then we usually have a little bit of a get together for a cocktail hour before dinner. And while you drink Prosecco or champagne and have all the herbs, it's really okay to talk about bridge with anyone for hours. So it's fine. <laughs> what about your social circle? Do you mostly hang out with other bridge players? Yes, or uh, colleagues of uh, my husband. That's one of the things I was really worried about when I moved to New York. I wasn't studying and I wasn't really working in the real term, meaning, yes, I was going to the bridge club, but, you know, it's not really an environment where I was expecting to meet that many people. Uh, so it was a little, you know, where am I going to find friends? But, you know, it was pleasant to surprise a huge uh, circle of very young pros and teachers here in New York. So it has been, it has been very good. And do you talk about bridge when you're hanging out together or <laughs> what do you tend to do? Um, well, I try not to. I'm a little bit of the black sheep, I have to say. I'm a little bit like, can we talk about something else? Like, we just left the bridge club. We were there for eight straight hours. Uh, but <laughs> most people, I have to say, they're just addicted. I mean, there's really like yeah. nothing else we could talk about. I try to diversify, but I would say for the most part, to talk about bridge. And when you talk about bridge, are you talking specifically about hands or are you talking about gossip? No, it's usually just hands, hands. <laughs> especially because, you know, most of the time we leave the bridge club, we've all played duplicate, we've all played the same hands. So, you know, that's the typical uh, post-mortem, as we would say, everybody's going, what did you do on this board? What did you do on that board? And then there is there, you know, once in a while, you know, what do you think about this? And that's where the real fun starts, you know, a lot of opinions uh, flying in, most of them not agreeing with each other. So <laughs> those are the good days. <laughs> Do you find that the double dummy feature on BBO has um, changed those kinds of postmortems or? Not too much for us. I mean, no. the double dummy is either too ridiculous to be followed or, <laughs> or, or usually we could see it ourselves. Like those are sort of the two. Either it was maybe complicated, but we could all see it at least after the fact. But if it's something, you know, you know, double dummy plays with open cards, it's not really always a re reliable source of information. So I would say not really in our case. No. I think for people, they might be a little bit of a lower level. It's still a very good thing to look at. You know, I always tell my students, look, but don't fully rely on it. You know, again, the double dummy is not taking finesses when they don't work and all of those things, which, right. you know, we can't do. But, you know. If it says making six and you went down in two, possibly we should review <laughs> That sounds like my worst board of the week. No, I'm kidding. Yes, no, that's the idea. <laughs> 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. What do you think your particular strength is in bridge? Um, I think kind of like in life, uh, personality. You know, I'm very adaptable, I'm very social, which, of course, it doesn't really have anything to do with the game itself. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'm pretty confident. I'm not very easily intimidated. You know, bridge presence is a huge part of the bridge game that has nothing to do with the technique. What do you mean? You know, just uh, being able to envision situations, being able to sort of uh, immerse yourself in the moment and... Uh, not think about too many other things, you know, so all little factors that don't really have anything to do with your knowledge of the game in itself, you know. And I think they're probably about 50% of a player's strength, you know, your endurance, uh, attention spam, all of those things. And uh, and I don't know if those things that I have are good because of bridge or my bridge is better because of those things. It's, uh, you know, again, I started so young that I don't really remember life without it. So I'm not sure. I'm guessing a combination of both again. Uh, but yes, I think that that's my main strength. My main strength is not really uh, the fundamental skill and technique. I think my fundamental skill is just uh, personality, character. You know, stamina and, uh, you know, toughness. I don't give up very easily and I'm not easily intimidated. So all of that stuff. And what do you think is your greatest weakness? Uh, greatest weakness? <laughs> I, I'm definitely not as technical uh, as I could and should be. And I guess the reason why it's a really worst weakness is one of the easiest things to work on. <laughs> you know, reading books and practicing specific problems is the easiest thing to actually improve in the game you know uh, the, the rest is much harder than the actual technical skill so that's definitely uh my weakest part and again even worse because i could probably do a lot more about it but uh, you know it's homework like everything else and it's it's annoying homework uh, like everything else so I would say that that's it you know suit combinations all these very technical things that i am 
not as good as I should be. Because again, they're just a matter of memorizing and learning. They're not, no, they're not talent or anything else. Does that apply also to working with a partner and to challenges in a partnership? Mm, I think the partnership side is really only a personality, uh, you know, uh, oriented. That's really the only thing that needs to click. I mean, of course, your bridge style needs to click. That's very important. But that's also easier to adapt and adjust with time. If the personalities don't click, that's pretty hard to adjust. And uh, I mean, bridge relationship, partnership is literally like a relationship. I mean, it's really hard. The dynamics are very tricky. Uh, you know, such a fine line between, uh, you know, speaking your mind and overstepping. So it's definitely a very hard relationship. So I think the most important part, like really in most, is, you know, respect. You really have to respect each other's game. You know, you can't really think yourself as too much better than the other, uh, you know, which is usually what every British flyer tends to think, that they're always so much better than everybody else, myself included. <laughs> I'm not taking myself out of the equation. <laughs> it's a very peculiar feature of bridge players. We're so much better than everybody else. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so it's tough. But I would say that technical skills are actually almost irrelevant in the game. Of course, you have to be in a similar range of skills, but that's not what really defines a good partnership. You were um, mentioning earlier in our discussion about the blame game that you get into with your partner, Zach oh, yeah. Grasswick. And you said you would talk more about it. So just oh, yeah. wanted to follow up on that. Yeah, no, I was saying that, you know, one of the tips I got when I was very, very young and uh, I, I had a boyfriend that also played bridge and we would play together and, oh my God, we would rip each other's head off. It was bloody. It was bad. <laughs> and, I mean, it was bad. And every time, you know, there was a discussion, we would always go ask somebody because, you know, we wanted to know who was right. And every time there was a problem that, started at point a nobody was to blame but the person that started the problem it doesn't matter if the person you know if the partner could have fixed it and could have figured it out they could have solved it it's like if you made the first mistake you're not gonna go blame your partner because your partner didn't figure out or didn't do something that could have saved the day you know because that's <laughs> that's something that you know that's part of the blame game right well yeah i made a mistake but i mean it was obvious i made a mistake why the heck didn't you try to help us right and it's like no 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 you made the first mistake we're not gonna blame it on anybody else it's okay but that's it you made the first mistake partner even though they could have done something about it they don't get any blame for it <laughs> that's funny that's really yeah, funny. Good way to solve the, the discussions much quicker than he would otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you were playing bridge? You know, not many funny things usually happen at the bridge table. Let's just say that. <laughs> usually it's either not great or really bad. <laughs> when it's good, it's supposed to be. So, you know, you never really, you never really think about it. But I remember a few years ago, I uh, was here in, uh, I think actually New York, but definitely in the U.S. I think actually New York, I was playing in a regional and uh, it was uh, not very big event, you know, regular regional team game. And, you know, we're playing this hand and we're sort of halfway through or so. And the declarer doesn't have any more cards in her hand. 
and we all have like five or six cards left. And so and everybody's looking around thinking, what is going on? <laughs> so, we all can on the cards and I, I, all of us have 13. So, you know, it, nothing happened like, you know, I, I want more or you have one more. And then all of a sudden we look down and she left five cards in the board. So she played the whole hand with like eight cards. And so we called the director and the director was like, well, I've never seen this before. I'm not <laughs> I don't really know what to do about this. <laughs> so, yeah. And the best part was that the five cards were like three kings and an ace or something oh, like that. Poor <laughs> person. Oh, that's terrible. I think we didn't even take any compensation because the result was so great. You know, there was yeah. no need for any further compensation than them playing with eight cards instead of 13. <laughs> I mean, how did you not notice that you only you would only lovely eight cards? Did she not sort her hand and see the pattern? Or yeah, I, I mean, that, I don't know, but trust me, we got to the last five when she was out, and we were like, oh, wow. it wasn't a, like it wasn't a ten seconds in realization. This was like two. two so yeah, I would say that that was one of the funniest things that happened. That is real. That is really funny. Um, I wanted to ask about the differences between how the game may be played in Italy versus the U.S. or in other sort of regional or um, national differences that you may have observed during the course of your playing all over the world. You know, the beauty of bridge is that bridge is the same everywhere in the sense the the overall sort of the outer shell is the same everywhere. You can go and you can play basically everywhere in the world with anyone. Of course, the, you know, the details of the styles are quite different. Uh, I think Italians have uh, definitely very peculiar, um, uh, peculiar style. Not in a necessarily better or worse sense. Of course, we think it's better. Many people think it's worse, but those are just details. Um, uh, and, you know, I couldn't really... Pinpoint. I don't think there is a description of how it's different. You know, it's hard to really tell. It's just our general uh, approach, our general treatment of certain situations. Um, and about that, actually, I'll, I'll deviate for a second, but it's funny, so I'll tell you. Um, uh, you know, I'll play the trials, the mixed trials with Zach, but he's also playing the open trials. So, you know, there's a little bit of a chance that he might qualify in the open trials and therefore not be able to join the mixed trials. And we're thinking about contingency plan and, you know, our captain said, Georgia, we should find somebody that you could play with, you know, just in case you can't play with Zach. And Zach was like, oh, we're going to have to find somebody that speaks Italian bridge. That's not going to be easy. <laughs> because of course they have the U.S. trials. So, you know, everybody, you know, has like a, the U.S. approach to it and, uh, so to answer that question, apparently a lot of differences. I wouldn't have known before I got here, but apparently a lot of differences. So what sort of things? Well, you know, they're really only in style. Again, they're not different in conventions or agreements. It's really just, uh, you know, just style. Like many of us don't open a no trump with a five car major. I mean, little stylish things that are really not, you know, not major, but. You know, as you as you play with somebody a lot, you know, you kind of want to know what the standard is for the partnership or for your partner. And and it, it takes a lot of time just because they come up once in a while. You know, each each sort of stylish trait comes out 
So it takes you a lot of boards before you sort of reveal all of those uh, things. So they're not necessarily that hard to adapt. Some might be more than others, but you just have to figure them out and that takes time. So in a short period of time, that could create some trouble, of course. I played in Italy, um, not any kind of a big tournament, but just in a club game when I was when I was traveling. And what really struck me was how small the convention card was, how simple it was compared to the standard convention card that you'll fill out in a U.S. club. Yeah, I would say, you know, we don't even have one. I was trying to understand, you know, what is going to happen. And it was and I was playing with Italians and I don't speak that well. And so it was it was kind of just a crazy situation, but I loved it. Uh, but I was really surprised at just how little how little information was to be captured on the piece of paper, which was that big. Yeah. And I thought that was I thought that was really funny. But I it, it was also it was terrific. And I loved the the expression, la quinta nobile. Ah, la quinta nobile. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So do you, with Zach, do you have um, system agreements, like a very long set of system agreements or? Not very not, long. Not very yes. long. <laughs> yes, we do. I mean, we have system notes that are, they're not very long. Uh, you know, they could be longer, I guess. But, you know, those are also things that sort of, uh, they they get created as you go, you know. The more you play, the more something comes up, you add it to the notes. So it has a lot. You know, there are so many situations in bridge that you can't really think about while you go through a system. So you just sort of wait until it happens. You add it to the notes and, uh, you know, the notes get longer and longer as you go. I'm assuming those notes would be particularly important at a tournament. Um, do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? I had a favorite tournament, um, but unfortunately discontinued the uh, because the sponsor was not, you know, not there anymore. Um, And it was the Greek Islands Bridge Festival. Uh, So, you know, in Europe or actually outside of the U.S., I would say most bridge tournaments are, you know, what we would call festivals. So they're more of a sort of vacation-based event where you play once, maybe twice a day, but for much less. Uh, And, you know, they're usually in beautiful places. And they're always prize money, not big money. It's not like you go for the money, but there's always going to be that aspect of the, the prize, uh, the prize money. Um, so that was definitely my favorite tournament. It was in Rhodes and it was just it was spectacular. It was so beautiful, you know, just two hours of bridge a day or so, two and a half in the afternoon. The rest of the day is free. You do whatever you want. So it's very different than what Americans see at a tournament. Because, you know, a bridge tournament is a tournament. That's all you do. I mean, you don't even step out of the hotel. So European tournaments are very different. They're more like we play for three, sometimes four hours if it's a, you know, if it's a lot. The rest of the day, according to where you are, you go to the beach or you do this, you do that, you go out for dinner. I mean, there's a lot more uh, socializing, and a lot more vacationing, uh, you know, involved. Which is wonderful. It probably it kind of increases a sense of community uh, amongst bridge players because you have that time outside of the, the game to socialize. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, growing up in the like the junior ranks, uh, you know, socializing has been very easy. You know, when you're young, everybody's traveling for bridge. It's like, oh my God, it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. So, you know, in that world, socializing is very easy. But definitely, I think, uh, you know, as you grow up and the tournaments get more serious, those type of events certainly help. You know, you don't have to worry about going to bed early. The next day you have to play and you have to be focused. I mean, of course you do. But when you play at 4 p.m., you have plenty of time to rest and be ready. You know, you don't have to be up and running at 9.30 because you have to play at 10 a.m. every day, you know. Do they have those midnight games at the tournaments in Europe? No, that's no. a U.S. thing. People are out eating and drinking at midnight. Well, they're drinking at those games, um, I think. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. I mean, I'm sure you could find somebody around the, you know, the hotel <laughs> premises. But now most people, you know, they're out partying and having a good time late at night in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I wonder if there are any conventions that you particularly like or maybe thinking about your students that you think are a waste of time when you see them trying to learn them. Yeah, uh, so in my like, I have Bergen races or any form of. I really couldn't care less for Bergen races itself. Uh, but any form of, any convention, you know, that really focuses on uh, differentiating the number of trumps and exact ranges are always very useful. Uh, a nine card fit and an eight card fit are two things that rarely even compare to each other. They're so different and, you know, one is so much better. Uh, so anything that revolves around, uh, you know, again, differentiating uh, number of trumps and ranges is, you know, something I always recommend. You know, whenever my students ask me, you know, what's a, what's a convention I should learn? I'm always, you know, Bernogan raises. And I mentioned Bergen only because they are sort of the standard popular thing to learn. Uh, I mean, I would say Bergen races are definitely uh, up at the top. And for my um, waist, <laughs> well, I'll have two. I have Gerber. I, hate Gerber. <laughs> I can't stand it. But the best part is that I keep going down in six no Trump without two aces, and I still hate Gerber. That tells how much I hate it. <laughs> because every time I end up in six no Trump and I go down because I'm missing two aces, I look back at the auction and I'm like, I really couldn't have used Gerber almost any time. So even when it does happen to be useful, usually you couldn't have used it. So that makes it extremely useless. So I hate Gerber. And then I also really hate forcing no Trump, but that's very Italian or rather guess non-American. I think Italian even more than, you know, than other places. And like, one no Trump is literally the best contract in the game. Why are you guys forcing yourself out of it? I don't get it. Like literally we spend our time trying to play one no Trump as often as possible. And you create a convention that forces you out of it. That's really, that's really something. <laughs> so yeah, those would be my words too. Okay. Do you find that your students can be categorized into different types. So for example, are there some that really like rules and are there others that just want to just play? I mean, and and how do you adapt your teaching style? I mean, most students in their early stages like rules. Now, most of them also won't really remember the rules, but they like them. 
which I understand. Okay, it's totally understandable. Rules, if you remember them, they certainly uh, make the approach to the game easier. They make the actual game impossible. I mean, you'll never be good with rules, but you know, as you as you learn, as you get better, they clearly help you at least get out and play. But you know, I'm not a big believer in rules. I think no real bridger can be a believer in rules. Bridge is the opposite of rules. Is having to adapt at a million different scenarios. There's never a rule for what you're gonna face. Adaptability is eighty percent. But I'm big in logic and like understanding why why something is the way it is. I definitely don't do rules a lot. Every time somebody melts the rule of seven or the rule of 11 or the rule of 20, I lose my mind. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about and I don't want to know. I mean, I can't understand how you decide what to do based on a rule. What do you mean the rule? You got to look at the cards. What rule? But... Logic. Logic and understanding that, yes, 100%, because if you don't understand why you're doing something, you will only get it right as long as there is no other factor in the equation. You change something and now you don't recognize anything anymore because it's just a little different. So no rules, but a lot of logic, a lot of explaining the fundamentals of why things are the way they are. So what's the best uh, bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given? I'm not good at this, but I would say the main tip is just, uh, you know, to really be kind to your partner. You know, uh, arguments, uh, you know, they just, they never lead anywhere. And again, I'm an argumentative type of person, but there is that threshold where we are feeding each other and motivating each other by pointing out what was wrong and what we could have done better. And then there is just rudely telling your partner they did something wrong. And I think that's the most important thing in bridge to, you know, keep your mouth shut unless you're really sure. And if you're really sure, try to say it nicely. But again, I'm really not good at this. Um, This is more a tip from me to everybody else. (laughs) It's what I've been given, but I've not been very successful at it. So to you, to everybody else, be nice to your partner. (laughs) And that's the show. Thanks to Georgia Bosha, Rabina Astley, Catherine Shirado, Dan Graboy, and Theo Hassan. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And as Georgia says, be nice to your partner. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.